as hard as it is for these parents when their children die, it's the lead up to their children's dying that is, for, for most of them, the even greater pain and source of, of suffering. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Benjamin Quinn. And this is the Christ and Culture podcast. Today we'll talk to Dr. Steve McKinnon about his family's journey through suffering and childhood cancer. It's a powerful conversation. Indeed it is. You won't be disappointed there. But first, let's begin with our segment, Ask the Profs. We received this question from a listener. It goes like this. Why does it seem like some theological systems, such as Calvinism, or Arminianism, or any ism as such, base their structures around a group of certain scriptures but ignore others. Is it wise, then, to commit to such theological systems? Dr. Keithley, this sounds like your world. Uh, The short answer is yes, Uh, but I would want to ask a few questions. First, what does the listener mean by the word commit? I think we have to recognize that all of us as Christians, the moment we're trying to make sense out of the narrative of Scripture, are engaging in some type of systematizing uh, what the Bible teaches. So I don't think that we can be atheological uh, in our approach to the Bible. There have been people who've tried it. No one has succeeded. I think it's helpful to remember that all good Christians are trying to make sense of all of the biblical witness And rather than ignoring certain portions, I think it probably would be more accurate to say that they emphasize certain portions more than others. And as a result, it seems to us that they perhaps are ignoring passages that they shouldn't. Every church you go to is an expression of a theological system. Now, I'm Baptist, and I'm I'm Baptist by conviction because I agree with how Baptists understand the role of the church in today's world. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, Baptists affirm a believer's church and a regenerate church membership. So therefore, they are not going to believe in certain things such as infant baptism, nor are they going to believe that the state should be used to implement church discipline. And so they're going to argue for separation of church and state. That is a theological position about what the church is and what it's supposed to be doing. So I think that we are to recognize that the role of theological systems in the Christian life. Having said that, they are human constructs. They are to be done in community, and it is in community that there is a certain level of safety. So therefore, I, with the community of faith, affirm such things as the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, uh, the Chalcedonian Creed. I really do think that, that the church got those things right. It is with fear and trembling that I join my Baptist brethren in saying that Christendom as a whole has missed something very important about believers' baptism and the role of the local church. And so I do think that we are to uh, recognize the role of theological systems. Um, It seems like every young Christian discovers a particular system that rings their bell, 
whether it's dispensationalism, our charismatic theology, our today the rage is Calvinism. Each of those systems has something very important to say to us and to teach us. And so therefore, I think a person can hold to any one of those systems with integrity. The moment that one feels like they need to go to battle or to war uh, for a particular system or reacts whenever they have that system challenged, I would say to my, my dear brother or sister that it doesn't appear that you're holding to that position with confidence. In fact, the fact that somebody feels like they have to react and attack anytime they have their theological system question would seem to me to be an appearance that you're really not all that confident about that system. So systems are helpful. They are a useful tool. Uh, but let's just remember that that's what they are. It's really helpful, Doc. I, I'm not uh, old enough yet to have forgotten many seminarians and even just Christian college university students who were in what we call the cage stage of seminary life, where it, it could be a theological system, it could be just a particular doctrine, it could be just an agenda item that maybe a it was important to one of their professors and then became really important for them. But all of a sudden then, sort of classically, whatever that thing is, and in this case, let's say it's a theological system like Calvinism or Arminianism or whatever, um, they've gotten this new hammer and now everything looks like a nail, and they just go whacking at it, right? Yeah. And we have to be, be careful of these things. I'm reminded our own president, Dr. Aiken, a number of years ago at a different seminary, preached a sermon called Loving a Theological System More Than the Savior. And it's a great warning about these kinds of things, regardless of what ism that it is. Uh, it's a great warning about holding these things, as you said, with confidence, but also holding them with humility and with charity. Yeah, there is a triage. There are those theological truths that are essential and are non-negotiable. Of course, we're talking about who God is, the doctrine of the Trinity, who Christ is, uh, the, uh, the hypostatic union, what salvation is by grace through faith. Yes, those are theological conclusions, but they've been held by the whole church for the last 2,000 years, and, 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 and those are non-negotiables. When we get into those second-tier things, like I talked about being a Baptist, all right, it may mean that I won't be able to plant a church with my Presbyterian brother and do it successfully. I still can wish and pray for my Presbyterian brother as he plants a church that, mm -hmm. he, that he prospers. I may disagree with him about baptism, but uh, I, that's a second tier. And then there's the third tier thing that, like I said, there may be something interesting to discuss in Sunday school, but that's as far as that goes. So being able to, to be mature enough to understand that hierarchy of importance I think goes a long way. And I would say that Calvinism and Arminianism are second tier level issues at best, and they're certainly not first order items. Suffering is one of those topics that we don't often talk about, but all of us have or will suffer at some point in our lives, and we'll certainly be prepared to even watch others suffer all right in front of us. What hope does Christ offer amidst our suffering, Dr. Keithley? Well, today we have with us Dr. Steve McKinnon. In addition to being professor of theology and patristic studies here at Southeastern Seminary, Dr. McKinnon also has a unique perspective on suffering, and so today he joins us to tell his story. Dr. McKinnon, Thank you for being with us today. 
great to join you. Thank you for having me. Dr. McKinnon, if you will, um, so much of this is going to center around the experience of you and your family in light of your son, Harrison, who had a very rare kind of cancer and battled it really twice. But can you just sort of paint the contours of what happened during those years? Yeah, so uh, childhood cancer is uh, a, uh, a deep and dark cavern, and uh, it's not as well known or seen as other, especially adult cancer communities, because children tend to be, you know, not good spokesmen for themselves, um, and their parents tend to be so consumed with trying to preserve their lives that uh, you don't you don't see children and their parents trotted out quite the way that you do, say, for adult uh, breast cancer or something. The community just isn't as uh, as cohesive, and and there are fewer obviously children that, that have cancer than, than adults. But Harrison's uh, struggle started, his journey began uh, December of 2011, had just turned 10 years old. He was uh, lethargic, didn't feel good, had some pain in his legs, would have these night sweats, which was really weird, um, which we had never heard of before, but came to find out all of those were symptoms of childhood leukemia. Uh, so about five days after he turned 10, we went went to his pediatrician. Pediatrician uh, thought he had, we thought he had a virus. Pediatrician thought he had a virus. And uh, they took his blood and came in and said, you need to go to the hospital right now. And so my wife called. I was at work preparing for the end of the semester and said, we, we're going to the hospital to have Harrison checked out. She gave me a little bit of the description of what the doctor said. Um, I did a quick Google search, as we all do at times like this, and uh, blood cancer was the first thing that came up. Now, obviously, you think, well, no way WebMD is correct, but we got to the hospital. Uh, they did some more tests. The doctor said, we, we feel like this is probably leukemia, and it was, and that started uh, a, a process for him that, that has, has lingered, really, for this entire 10 years or so since that happened. He started chemotherapy that night. Uh, the next morning had surgery to, to have a port inserted in his chest. Two weeks later, because of one of the um, drugs that he was on, he suffered a stroke. The doctor sent people into us uh, to say, you know, he's, he's not going to make it uh, through the night. And uh, praise the Lord, he, he did in fact survive. Uh, a few weeks later, he recovered from that stroke. And then they, they discovered that the chemotherapy was not effectively treating his, uh, his cancer. Most childhood leukemia, about 98% of kids with leukemia go into remission within the first month. Uh, now, going into remission is very easy for leukemia. It's staying in remission. That's the hard part. But he didn't go into remission, and there's virtually a 0% likelihood of survival if you don't go into remission in the first month. Um, and so uh, the doctors decided they would try some experimentation um, somebody had written a, a paper, scholarly paper, on um, children that have leukemia that don't go into remission, what might be the cause of it. A pathologist over the weekend at UNC Chapel Hill was looking at his blood and was just determined that she was going to find out what was, what was causing driving his cancer. Uh, she found the, the chromosome location, a translocation that was causing his leukemia. And they con consulted with a few other researchers that said, why don't we try this experimental treatment? It's, we've tried it on, mouse, on mice, and it's worked. Maybe it'll work on him. Most of the doctors said, don't do it. It's, it's uh, you know, unfair to a child to give them a false hope or parents to give them a false hope. But our doctor tried, 
it worked, sent him into remission. He was then uh, in treatment for the next uh, three and a half years, which is how long leukemia treatment is for children. Um, you know, adults, again, sometimes people don't recognize this because adult treatment, cancer, when people are being treated for cancer, it tends to be pretty pretty short, maybe six months, six weeks, those kinds of things. But for childhood leukemia, it's three and a half years. Describe to us, what does that three and a half year regimen look yeah. like? Chemotherapy every day. He took about 50 pills a day. Uh, which were various chemotherapies that he took. Now, mind you, he didn't know how to take medicine at the time, so that meant we were crushing them up, putting it in his peanut butter, putting it in uh, Rice Krispie treats, a whole, mm-hmm. all these foods that we've now ruined for him uh, that he won't, he won't eat now. The good news is he survives. I should probably start with that. I, I did a talk on this the other night, and I got to the end of it, and uh, someone came up and said, did he survive? Because uh, I never got to that point, but he, he does survive. So, yeah. But, he, uh, but yeah, so that's, and then for once a month, uh, he would go in for uh, treatment where they would inject chemotherapy into a spinal column, and then he would get it through his port, and then he would start a, a dose, uh, a regimen of steroids for a week. So he would have roid rage for a week. And that's where you get kids with a big fat face, uh, you know, the moon face and all is all from the chemotherapy that, I mean, the, the steroids they take as a part of their chemotherapy regimen. So it was every, I mean, he was in the hospital at, at least once a month for the whole three and a half years. During that time, uh, any time that a, that a kid gets, because they have a port, any time they get a fever over 100 degrees, uh, they have to, it's an ER visit mm-hmm. and you have to go to the ER and, and, you know, where they're being treated, obviously. So that was a, an hour trip to UNC Chapel Hill. Um, and several of those times he had infections, fungal infections, uh, because you have virtually no, no, um, uh, no white, white blood system, right? No immune system. So he spent many, many months in the hospital over the course of that time. After that three and a half years, we felt good. It was fabulous. He was done, spent a year off of treatment, and began to recover. And how old is he at this time? He finished treatment in April of his seventh grade year in school. So he was like 13, I guess, 12 or 13. Um, Is off for a year, enjoys eighth grade, is having a fabulous time, hair grows back. In in some ways, you would never know what he had been through. You know, your, the body the port is amazing. Is gone. That's right. Yeah. It gets the port taken out, which is a celebration. And so uh, the next summer rolls around following his eighth grade year. He's, he's having a great summer. He's playing baseball and just strength is back uh, and, and is really enjoying life. He, he throws a no-hitter um, against Wakefield High School. And um, he the next day, we go in to have some headaches tested. He'd been having headaches for several months, um, and they checked his blood, no problem, no cancer recurrence, no anything. So after that game, that was on a Monday, the next morning went in, and they checked some spinal fluid, and it was completely packed full of cancer, which is a terrible thing. I mean, leukemia is terrible anywhere that you have it, but you don't want it in the central nervous system. Those, when, when there's a relapse in the CNS, it's, it's nearly always fatal. So the doctors um, started some treatment again to try to put him back in remission, and it and it didn't work. It took them, you know, all summer long. They they were doing everything, throwing everything they could at it. The the relapse protocols weren't working, and so at the end of the summer, they decided to up the ante a little and go to to some more dramatic uh, treatments. And his doctor went on vacation for a month in September, and when he came back, he told us he said, "I didn't think Harrison would be here when we went back." 
Hmm. Um, he said there's no reason he should have survived. He spent this was his ninth grade year in high school. Did go to high, didn't go to school a single day that year, but he spent four months straight in the hospital in one room because of how bad he was. He wasn't allowed to leave his room. Um, and so there were times when, you know, as he's described it now, he wanted to jump out of the window. And mm-hmm. I mean, the, the kind of isolation, the, the mental and emotional torture was, was just as bad as the physical torture. He lost about 57 pounds. He was skin and bones. And it was, it was, a, it was a terrible thing. When he finally was released, after they got his cancer into, into remission, he had to have a backpack that he had to carry both uh, nutrition and some additional antifungal drugs that they were just pumping into him all the time. That spring, uh, spring of his ninth grade year, the doctors told us that they were going to stop doing the chemo, that it was just killing him, and uh, they were just going to have to hope and pray that the cancer didn't come back. It, it did come back in that spring. We didn't tell Harrison that his cancer had come back, though. It was uh, parents deal with this in different ways with their kids. Some some parents and doctors are, uh, you know, they tell their kids everything. And, you know, when it comes to suffering, people suffer in different ways. And Harrison uh, was not really one that it would have been a good thing to tell him his cancer was back. So when his cancer came back, we, we didn't have any options. We were, we were out of options. He didn't have a match for a bone marrow transplant, which would have killed him anyway. But there was a clinical trial in Seattle that they were doing, uh, kind of voodoo with uh, taking your, your, your uh, white cells out, reprogramming them, and then putting them back into you, training them how to recognize cancer and fight it. So we just told him, we said, we've got great news for you. You get a choice to make. You can either go to Seattle and we can do this and you never have to take chemotherapy again. Or uh, you can keep doing some oral, just a light dose of oral chemo. And he said, I want to go. I mean, anything to -hmm. get out of that. So we Mm -hmm. flew out to Seattle. uh, And when we're meeting with uh, the the team that's running this clinical trial, he had to go through, because he was 16 at this point, he had to sign all of the compliance uh, documentation. And so when they said, now you recognize this could kill you. And he looked up, he said, this could kill me? And, you know, just started crying. I mean, he... And, and basically what the doctors had said is this will either cure him or kill him. That these, these are the two options. And so we relocated how that do you, summer. How do you and Ginger process hearing, hearing the doctors say, well, this is going to cure him or kill him? Yeah. I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you address that? Yeah. So it's not it, – obviously it's not easy. The, the suffering that we had been through with Harrison for those several years, those three and a half, four years by that point – kind of prepared you for those things. I mean, so you're at that point. Where absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So Harrison's when he relapsed, when, when Harrison's cancer came back in that summer of 2016, it was worse than we, when he was initially diagnosed because we had seen what all he had already gone through. We knew the suffering that he was enduring. You know, when you first start this, you're not sure what it's going to be like. And we, we didn't obviously want him to die from this treatment when we went and did CAR-T treatment in Seattle. But it was well worth the risk because he was going to die either way. I mean, leukemia doesn't just hang around and you don't just keep it back. It, eventually, if you don't eradicate it, it will kill you. And you can't live with like little bits of leukemia. So the doctors were clear to us that his doctor here, who was always open and honest, never hid anything, which I appreciate greatly, was very clear with us. You know, he's going to die. This is this is the only hope he has. So it, in, in that sense, it was a very easy decision. 
but the the emotional turmoil and toll that that and takes that on you. In that moment, humans. here we are at yeah. that point. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And it was it was terribly frightening, obviously. But I, I think I think there are a host of things about suffering that that come out of this story, and there's so much more to it because it's like he has to have hip replacement surgery because the the chemotherapy destroyed his hips, and you know what, 15 year old, 16 year old wants to go through that. Uh, loses so much. You know, his friends move on without him. He's isolated. He's alone. I mean, it's just, it's amazing that he's alive. The, the number of times in the hospital, he was like, can I just die? Um, you know, think about Revelation 9 and this, you know, people who are suffering and it's, I would, I would rather that, that being alive is a, is a greater source of pain than, than being dead. And the number of nights when I would leave the hospital to come back to work and teach the next day, not knowing if he would be alive whenever I woke up or got through with class. So let's talk. Terrible. Yeah, let's talk about the process so they can hear about that that process, yeah. and then let's go over to talking about all of those things that you're talking about in terms of how does one spiritually, emotionally, psychologically deal with this? Both you individually, you're, you know, as a, as you and Ginger, and right. and and you. You know, he has he had siblings. I'd like to hear about that. So tell us about the Cartee process. What happened? Yeah. So uh, basically relocated to Seattle for a summer, the summer of 2017. My, my dad died a couple of weeks before we left to go over there. But uh, so there was there was a lot of emotional turmoil already going on that summer. Uh, but we re- relocated, left our other two kids here. Uh, one, our son was in college at the time. Our daughter graduated from high school. So she was getting ready to go off to college that fall, and we left them here the summer by themselves. I think my daughter took care of my her older brother. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's uh, she's she's like that. She's the grown little mom, and and again, they had they were great with all of these things. They loved on Harrison. They cared for Harrison. They ministered to Harrison. They lost a lot of things, and this is what happens in the childhood cancer community. Is that as bad as it is for the child who is enduring these things, the whole family gets cancer. I get that. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, and it's this is this causes so many problems for people, right? So when we're in when we're in Seattle, a lot of families were there at the Ronald McDonald House where we were who had come for this trial and for other things as well. And to hear the stories, um, not not just the stories of the the um, medical problems that they're having or cancer or what have you, it is the emotional toll that this takes on people. The number of families, somewhere near 85% of families in the childhood cancer community end in divorce. Hmm. Um, it, is, it is nearly impossible to stay married as, as a parent of a, of a child with cancer. Uh, the financial toll that it takes on people because they can't work. They, uh, you know, you're having to travel places. We, we estimated that we spent somewhere around $11,000 in parking fees at UNC Chapel Hill in uh, these last 10 years, maybe a little more than that, but somewhere around that $11,000 mark, because you got to pay. I mean, you can't every time that you go. Um, mm-hmm. And, it's, you know, if you're there for two or three months or four months at a time, those things just add up and you're there at least once a month for the for three and a half years, usually more. So to, to see what happens to families, you know, kids that that feel like they've missed out on things. And so they resent their siblings or they resent their parents because of what goes on. Um, parents, they, they, you deal with grief and you deal with suffering and pain differently. So, you know, for some people, some parents who are suffering, they deal with the, the grief or the pain that they're going through by um, talking about it. 
and others are, I don't want to talk about it. And some people are, I want to, I want to be involved in everything that's going on. And it's, I just want to ignore it and pretend it's not happening, which causes all sorts of strife between parents, uh, between mom and dad. Um, and, and we weren't immune to any of those things. We're, uh, we, we, weren't, we weren't robots. I mean, there have been times when, you know, I have, I have said things to God that I would never want to say about him uh, to someone else. I mean, you know, it's when, when he's first diagnosed, I can even now remember laying on the floor in the hospital uh, at, at three or four o'clock in the morning and just thinking, how in the world can this be happening? And then when Harrison relapsed, just lashing out at the Lord. I mean, it's um, I mean, these aren't things I'm proud of, but it's it's real life that suffering uh, pushes people to the brink. Now, and, and as much as suffering is common to all human beings, and not everybody's suffering is like a childhood cancer parent, and, and this is not—I I would not suggest it's necessarily anything worse than other people go through with the suffering that they have. Uh, suffering can so easily push us to an emotional brink, for sure, but even more so a spiritual brink, where we get to the place, and, and you know, some people, they're trying to be very good and kind to you, and it's like, well, you know, God has a plan. And it's like, well, then I don't like him anymore. If yeah, he's got is, a plan that includes this, yeah. I don't like him. Is there a cliche that works in a time like this? There, there's not. And here's, here's what I tell people, because we, we're still in, very engaged. Uh, we, we talk to uh, new, newly diagnosed parents all of the time. The hospital knows, kind of point them in our direction, and, and we, we minister to them. And, um, and, and one of the things that we, that we say to them is just block out what other people say. And then we do a lot of training. We do a lot of, of work with churches and other people to help them if they want to minister to people in the childhood cancer community. And one of the things that we say is don't say anything, that your greatest gift is your presence. Hmm. Just be there. Um, and, and when they're ready to hear from you, they'll let you know, at which point what you want to share with them is truth, not cliché. And there, there may be an element of truth in clichés, but that's not the truth, right? They, and, and so um, there, there aren't cliches that help. So that, you know, God has a plan or things are going to work out or it's all going to be okay. Or, or all things work together for good. All things work together. It, yeah. None of that helps that, you know, everything happens for a reason. Those kinds of, those kinds of um, efforts. And, and people have the, the, the best intentions in doing this. And I would have done it for years and years and have said those things for years and years. And then once you, you, you find yourself in this kind of situation, you realize that there, there's a greater need that you have than something that gets you through the next minute, and, you know, a little cliche that makes you feel better right now, and that is this real sense of confidence and hope. And um, we had that particular week as a family, we've been reading Psalm 126. And Psalm 126, the psalmist says that when the nations ask you, has the Lord done something good for you? Your response is, the Lord has done something good for us. And at the end of that, 126, it says that your mourning will be turned to joy, your grief will be turned to laughter. And it's this, this fabulous picture of the promise that God makes to us, and it may not happen in that moment. And it, it may very well be that as, as most children um, who endure childhood cancer find out that there's, there's death at the end of this, there's suffering at the end of this that just goes on for a lifetime, there's loss, there's grief. But in the gospel, there is this restoration. And that's the message that 
um, becomes the sustaining message. And it, it's not always one that you either want to hear or want to remember. But um, as you endure this kind of suffering, you have to come back to a confidence in that reality. Not, not the, again, not the cliches, not the little quips. It's the reality of, of knowing this God who has promised in Christ a restoration. And um, that, that kind of relationship is what enables you to endure. So how did, how did the CART-T process, what happened and bring us to the end there? Yeah, so when we, when we went out there in the spring, um, they took his, uh, they, they did an apheresis, which is where they run your blood out of your body. They took all the white blood cells out and or not, they took white blood cells out and then put your blood back into your body. We were there for a week for that. Went back out there in the summer, relocated, and they, in the, in the meantime, had taken those white cells to a lab and had trained them to kill uh, certain cells in your body, white blood cells, which is leukemia, that have a marker on the outside of them. Now, all of your white blood cells have this marker, but it's cool because they're the only cells in your body that have this marker. It's called CD19. So no other cells have them. So they're like, if we kill every CD19 cell in your body, then we will kill the cancer too. Now, it means you have zero immune system, but it's okay. It's, it's worth it. So they, they gave him, and it's really cool. They, they bring in this uh, like R2-D2 looking device, and they open the top of it, and all this dry like smoke comes out of it. It's like a rock concert. It's just really cool. So they then defrost these cells. Uh, 23 million of them. They defrost them in the sink in this room, and then they injected them into his body, and they watched him for two hours to see if he dropped dead uh, or had some other kind of reaction. And he didn't, and so they said, have a nice day, and we left. And uh, we went to the zoo, and um, he was feeling better. He was feeling strong. There's, there was no visible problem. That, mm-hmm. But what happens with the CAR-T is these cells, as they start killing off all of your white blood cells, you have essentially the same reaction that COVID produces, which is an autoimmune reaction. And in fact, when COVID started and I saw that people were dying of this, one of the things that I wrote to someone was, can we give them TOSI, which is this drug that they use to treat this autoimmune, and a friend of mine at the University of Pennsylvania. And so he shared it and said, in fact, that's that's what they're saying now. They're going to start doing. It's just the the similarities are the same. Okay. So um, about a, about two weeks later, um, he started to get a fever, and the doctors had said if he gets a fever, which we expect, bring him in. And if he gets a fever, it's a good thing. It means your body that that's what a fever is. Your body's having an immune reaction, and so they're like that means that means it's working. So uh, he went in the hospital, hung out for a couple of days, and uh, about. About three days into it, they started asking him every hour, even the night they would wake him up and they would ask him, who's the president? What's your name? What's your parents' name? Where are you from? That sort of thing. And he always would answer and it was fun. And then Friday night, uh, about one in the morning, they asked, woke him up. What's your name? He didn't know. Who's the president? He didn't know. It, which is a, um, a neurological response that card. And this is what kills kids is mm-hmm. what he's what he's now entering into. Um, it's a cytokine release storm is what it's called and uh, and neuro, uh, a neurological reaction. So at that point, it becomes, all right, we're going to the ICU um, because we know things are about to about to get bad. And it did. He felt like he was on fire. So he's mm-hmm. screaming. He's trying to rip his clothes off. It's um, 
probably the most frightening thing I've ever watched. Even when when Harrison had a stroke, it was terrible uh, to watch your son having a stroke. But this was just awful to observe and to watch. And so he's screaming. And then when he when that finally subsides, he doesn't know who anybody is. And so he's yelling at us, and and he goes from screaming at us, uh, you know, his parents, to then crying and being sad. The emotional up and down. Mm. Ended up being put on a breathing machine, um, and uh, it was, uh, again, quite quite frightening. And that was the moment that they were saying, this is either going to kill him or it's going to take care of his, his cancer. And so when it all gets over, and, and, and as quickly as he had gone into that, um, that, that storm and the neurotoxicity, he came out of it. I mean, literally, he went from, in one minute, not knowing who he was or where he was, to the next minute being back sane again. So how long was that period? 24 hours? It was about 24 hours. 24 hours, okay. About 24 hours. Yeah. And so um, two days later, uh, all of his counts recovered, his blood counts recovered, everything, and we left the hospital and uh, stayed there for another month. And then um, he had a, a spinal tap where they checked to make sure there was no cancer in his spinal fluid, make sure there was no cancer in his blood, make sure there was no cancer in his bone marrow. So they did those three things in the morning. And uh, that night we were on the red eye back to back to Raleigh. Uh, we landed here at eight in the morning. He went to um, soccer practice that day and started the 10th grade and has never looked back. And um, praise the Lord. It, it was uh, curative. Doc, uh, let's go back to yeah, earlier you took us into kind of the, the gospel, the confidence that we have and the hope that we have, Psalm 126. You mentioned as well that you guys remain pretty close to the cancer, childhood cancer community and, and minister to families and what have you. I, I would imagine that sometimes the conversation goes like this. Well, Steve, Harrison survived. My child didn't survive. Yep. What do you say to that? And that happens all the time. Uh, and... Ginger, especially my wife, has been to dozens of funerals for for cancer kids, and, the, and parents do say that. That one of the things that we don't do, however, is say easy things to them, mm. so that these parents are are grateful for our presence because we haven't said, "Well, you know, it's going to be okay." So we haven't laid the groundwork for a, this isn't fair that your son is alive, so I don't want to listen to you. Because the, the, the greatest pain, it, as hard as it is for these parents when their children die, it's the lead up to their children's dying that is, for, for most of them, the even greater pain and source of, of suffering. They watch their children go through this. This is not they get a call because their, their child has been in a car accident. Or, as terrible as all those, and there's no comparing. It's not a, a, an easier or better. It's just a different, that, that they've watched them die for years and years uh, sometimes, or at least for months, and have known that this is happening. I mean, we've, we've been at the hospital before when a mom walked over to Ginger and said, my 14-year-old daughter is, is with the doctor right now. The doctor's telling her she's going to die in two weeks. And uh, I wanted the doctor to tell her directly, and so I'm out here with you. And so we sit down and we're sharing coffee with one another while her daughter is being told. But again, she, she lived with that. She was diagnosed about the same time that Harrison was, and she had lived with this reality. You, you almost die every day in the childhood cancer mm-hmm. community. And so when these children pass away, 
unlike with, say, breast cancer and other adult cancers, the parents are so impacted by this, whether, they, whether their children live or die, they don't stay as involved in the community as adults do. So adults, you know, a woman goes through breast cancer and survives, and oftentimes what happens is she then gets involved, and she does walks, and she raises money, and that sort of thing. Most parents, especially if their kids survive, is they want nothing to do with it ever again. And the kids certainly want nothing to do with it. And, and that's so, understandable. That's right. So the only people you ever hear from, and this I, I was at, I was at, uh, I was testifying before Congress one time, or a, a committee at Congress one time, and I was talking to some of the, the senators afterwards, and they said it was refreshing. Now, this is terrible, but it's true. It was refreshing to have you here because your son is an example of research that we funded working said the only parents we hear from are the ones it doesn't work for. And it's hard to rally support for these things. So, yes, we, we do. We, and we do hear this all the time from, from parents. One of, our, one of our dear friends whose son died about the time Harrison was diagnosed, just this week she posted on social media, you know, my son would have been 14 years old today. He never should have died. Uh, I'm, I'm angry every single day that he did, and I understand every ounce of emotion in that post. Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you're in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. So I know that you've, you've pastored multiple times. You're interim pastor right now. I pastor a church. And even as pastors or shepherds or leaders or just friends in our churches, we're always either walking with someone through some measure of suffering or we're grieving with someone who's just lost, lost someone and or suffering with that. Or we're, we're waiting. It's, it's, it's about to happen. How do we prepare people for that? And I think of this as a pastor like what type of preventative maintenance do we need to uh, do we need to sort of conduct in our pastoral ministry and maybe even just in our friendships? Because it seems to me, when the phone call comes to in your case, when Ginger calls you and says we're going to the hospital, it's too late at that point for the pastor to say, "Oh, well, let me explain how suffering is is a reality in God's right. world." Or when you get the call that the the car wreck has happened, or whatever the case is, it's too late to try to backfill. Uh, how we think about suffering and God's relationship to this. So from a shepherding standpoint, even just from a friend standpoint, what kind of preventative measures can we do to prepare people for this? I think building strong, authentic relationships, Mm -hmm. both with God and with one another in the church, um, is probably step number one. These Christian relationships that we have that, that aren't built on the cliches and just we happen to be sitting in the same Sunday school class as one another, but we really are uh, doing life with one another around the gospel and as the body of Christ so that that, that foundation already exists. And, and that's what you're talking about is, is building a foundation and a structure that is able to stand when these uh, times of suffering come. 
And you can't build that once it starts. Once the flood's coming, you can't start putting the foundation for the house, that Jesus says, right? It's going to get washed away. So you have to do that now. And that's the, that's the main way that, that we can do that, is that we can help people to build these kinds of authentic Christian relationships with one another in the church. And secondly, is that they can grow in discipleship, because there is something to discipleship being a dying daily and a taking up our cross and following after Christ. One of our problems in, in our churches, I, I, I think, in my own experience, I think would bear this out even in my own life, is that our churches are so much about how to make people happy. You know, we, we have sermons, five steps to the happy home and three steps to the happy career and how to be healthy, wealthy, and still be a Christian and those sorts of things. And I think we set people up for suffering as opposed to building them up to prepare them for suffering. We set them up for collapse during their suffering because we've essentially, and, and it's probably been unintentional, but we've told them your life is about being happy. And when they start to suffer, they say, well, something must be wrong with God because my church has told me that life is about being happy and the Christian life is about just being having kind of a more abundant and enjoyment of what I've got right here as opposed to life being something else. And so I, I think we could... We, could, we have to shift our thinking away from you're supposed to be really happy right now, and then when that falls apart, we have to try to adjust, but not replace that with life is supposed to be terrible here, but you're going to get a mansion in glory one day. We don't want that either. Instead, we want this, this genuine and authentic gospel to be at work in our lives that shapes us into the men and women that God would have us to be, the families that God would have us to live in, the churches that God would have us to participate in and to become, and that builds a foundation that isn't washed away. Um, but, but it's relational, not individual. You're not, we're not building people up to be the individual spiritual athlete so when suffering comes they can endure it. We're, um, we're builders of community so that when the storm comes and hits the, the north side of the building, that the rest of the building can can uh, be a source of strength, and and that's that's what I would say say in our churches we probably ought to be more intentional about doing. As one friend, even mutual friend of ours, talks about, there's there are friends, and then there are coffin carrying friends, and I suppose even when it comes to the kinds of relationships that we want to develop uh, before, during, and after suffering or in the midst of suffering, uh, we want those kinds of relationships. It's really helpful. As we close, I imagine there are people listening to this podcast that they will be able to relate in one way or another. Maybe there are people who are. So what type of resources would you recommend? Where, where could they go? What could they read? Where, where, where would you point them? So I would say a couple of things. Uh, if, if you're interested in the reality of the, the cancer community and, and the childhood cancer community in particular, uh, there's a uh, PBS series, a documentary series on a book called The Emperor of All Maladies, which is a, about cancer, but it's not, it's the biography of cancer is the, is the subtitle of the book. It's not like a scientific uh, review of cancer. It really is about what what it is like to live within the cancer community, um, and in particular the childhood cancer community that kind of gets a, a light shine on it. So uh, shown on it. So you can you can learn something about the community if if it has to do with one's own suffering, whether they are children, they have children that are going through this, they're going through cancer, or other or other sources of suffering. 
Kate Bowler has a great book. Um, the name of the book is Everything Happens for a Reason, and it's a, it's a great resource that came out of her own uh, experience with cancer, which is, at, you know, from a Christian perspective, how do, we, how do we really approach these sorts of things when it comes to suffering? And I would say thirdly for us, and this is not so much a resource as like a volume or a book or something to read, but what we found is that the, the place to know the presence of God is his people, that that's where the Spirit of God mm-hmm. is present. And uh, that doesn't mean just go to church, because like Harrison wasn't allowed to go to church um, for, for months and months while he was, was being treated. Uh, couldn't go to school, couldn't go to church, be around other people. The whole COVID thing, like we went mm-hmm. through that for years, so it mm-hmm. wasn't a big shock for us. But, but the people of God is where, the, where God's presence and God's Spirit is known. And so you can't, it's not like we're just going to survive this thing on our own and we're going to get through suffering on our own. We're not made to suffer on our own. Romans chapter 8, it, it, you know, acknowledges to us that suffering is real, that we're going to suffer. It's part of the common human experience. Um, death is going to come and all of the suffering that leads up to death is going to be there. But God's presence by means of his spirit is sufficient even in the face of this kind of suffering. And so the the greatest resource that people can find in their suffering is the people of God. Dr. McKinnon, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to be here. God bless you guys. Mm -hmm.